0: today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.
1: If your regimen is too strong, whether it's myeloblative or too strong of a non-myeloblative one, it's too immunosuppressive, it, you can have more toxicity and problems. If it's too weak, it's not gonna be effective. And so you've gotta find that right regimen. And like I say, it's in the book, it's like an astronomer finding the habitable zone for a planet. You can't be close to the sun, you can't be too far away life as we know it won't exist so you've got to find that right regimen and that's going to vary by the disease
0: hello hello i'm your host dr carrie jones and today i'm talking with dr richard burt a pioneer in the field of hematopoietic stem cell transplants and certain autoimmune conditions i was first alerted to his amazing work by his book by the title everyday miracles curing multiple sclerosis Scleroderma." and autoimmune diseases by hematopoietic stem cell transplant. I literally couldn't put it down and I highly recommend it. If you or someone you know is experiencing an inflammatory autoimmune condition, you're definitely gonna wanna tune in. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, Make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com and create your free account today. Now, let's start the show. Oh my goodness, Dr. Burt, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I am beyond excited to talk with you because as I'm saying to you off camera, I have devoured every ounce of your book and I'm really excited to talk to you today.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: Well, you wrote a book, Everyday Miracles, and what caught me at first when you reached out was your approach with autoimmune and certain autoimmune with how you do things. And we're going to dive into that because autoimmune is a hot topic and it can be really devastating, as you know, for a lot of people. And I've had various guests on talk about various aspects of autoimmune, but with you in particular, I couldn't put your book down. I read it in a single day and I have all sorts of questions. So if you're ready to get started, I am.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you for reading it, and I'm looking forward to your questions.
0: Absolutely. Okay, well, first of all, before we get started, for people who don't know you or are unfamiliar with your work, give us a brief synopsis background of who you are, what you do, and what you stand for, and then we'll dive
1: into the book. So I'm a physician, originally trained Baylor in, in Houston, Texas, and then at the national institutes of health for seven years where i was mostly in national heart lung and blood and national cancer institute and i was trained in transplanting leukemias and then did fellowship work also at hopkins in baltimore maryland and the fred hutch in seattle and then started doing came to uh, chicago northwestern started doing transplants for hematologic malignancies kind of heading that. But before I came here, I had this idea of using transplant in a different way, modifying it, making it more gentle, immune specific, not myeloablative for autoimmune diseases. And I was working in animal models for about 10 years as proof of principle, and then eventually entirely switched over and just gave up cancer completely and developed a program of transplant for autoimmune diseases which has brought us to where we are today with this book. But along the way, I also came up with another idea that can be another podcast someday of actually regenerating damaged and aging tissue. So my original concept about 35 years ago was to convert a chronic autoimmune disease into a one-time reversible illness. And I worked 10 years in animal models and basic immunology, then took it to the bedside and worked 20 years developing the clinical protocols and perfecting them and trying to get it out to the world, giving a lot of talks, writing about a lot of publications, doing a medical textbook, a recent one that was published November 2021, that was about 686 pages with 140 professors around the world and then doing this laybook because still nobody seems to know about it. But along the way, I started about 10 years ago in the lab working in this concept of a new type of stem cell to reverse aging whole different paradigm. And it worked in animals, just like my stem cell transplants, mytopodi, had two and a half decades ago for animals with autoimmune diseases. And so we patented that we have seven patented technologies, and we're moving forward to try to develop that so that if I live long enough, God willing, and are the fates willing, or however you want to view this universe, I will at least execute some phase 1 trials for aging and degenerative diseases to see if we can impact on that after which I'd probably like to very much turn it over to others and <laughs> do a little less although maybe not I don't know I love what I do
0: I was going to say it seems like your passion you can really feel that when you read when you read your words
1: so anyway that's kind of the synopsis in short and so one of the things though I found is that there's been a lot of resistance in understanding or accepting this. And a lot of what I've come to realize is knowledge is important. I'm a professor. I spent my life doing research and teaching and reading and learning. Just before our talk today, I got a bunch of manuscripts I'm sitting from others reading. But what I've come to realize is although knowledge is important, a little knowledge is dangerous. And I realize that because people say things, and I'm not talking about patients. Actually, patients are often more accurate. I'm talking about professionals out there, whether they're a PhD, not even an MD, or an MD in their localized silo or tower, where not doing this, not seeing it, not having developed it and it being a new field, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I've tried with the appropriate medical publications and medical textbooks to get through to medical professionals. And part of it is medicine is so complicated, it's really hard to learn about other areas, much less a whole new area. Like there's a lot of medicine I don't know. I don't know ophthalmology, even the field of stem cells. There, so I'm an expert in a particular area, the hematopoietic for disease. I've pioneered it. And my new area is working with our IPS cells for aging. So I can talk about those things. But when people ask me to talk about mesenchymal stem cells or neuro stem cells, I always decline, even though I'm viewed as a stem cell expert because I don't work in the area and I don't want to mislead people because I've seen others talk about Work I'm doing and it's not really accurate and it kind of raises your eyebrow. It's continuing misinformation and so I wanted to not just try to get information out to professionals but to the lay public and to empower them and that's why I wrote this book. So I wanted to write it in a way that a non medical person would understand it and enjoy it. Uh, put the medical terms and what we're doing in a more simple writing. A more enjoyable way rather than reading a medical paper and to attach the humanistic part of it, the human story. And so it's kind of a profiles and courage of, of many different patients as well as the development of the field and why it's done this way and the differences in the type of transplants and so forth. And compared to standard drug therapy out there, which is really just chronic treatment with mostly the goal to slow the progression of the disease, not to stop it or reverse it and get off all drugs. So I wanted to empower the patients. And i found actually that every professional that's read this also couldn't put it down and has really enjoyed it, every physician. But it's written for patients. And even without a medical background, you certainly can understand this. Patients who have particular autoimmune diseases like the five discussed in here, multiple sclerosis, scleroderma, CIDP, neuromyelitis octopyr, Crohn's. Many patients, I'm very much amazed how they read up and study their own disease, often knowing quite a bit, and they'll certainly get a lot out of this as well, as well as people who are healthy, haven't looked at these issues, but are interested in this or just enjoy the humanistic aspect of it and the human stories. So I wanted to empower patients and their families and their friends or people who have loved ones with these illnesses and make them informed of what's going on. And that's why I wrote this book, and then that's also why I'm doing the podcast. Because I, once you write a book, people need to know it's there to be able to get it and to read it, and so part of that is trying to reach out. So thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, absolutely. And what's just so interesting that I'm sure you run across your entire career is that I have been in medicine, granted in the functional integrative alternative form of medicine for 24 years. And so when I got your book, I've known about stem cells. I know what stem cells are, but I had never heard of hematopoietic stem cell therapy with autoimmune, and you've been doing it for decades. Yes. <laughs> and I thought that was really unfortunate on my part and unfortunate on medicine's part that you have been, as you said, pioneering this. The patient testimonies are absolutely amazing. and I had never heard about it. So let's go into that first. What is hematopoietic stem cell therapy? And then cover those five. Who have you found it is helpful for? In the book, you talk about inflammatory versus neurodegenerative, and so... It's really exciting for me to hear your new passion as you get into stem cells for that, but we'll start with the book.
1: Yeah. So part of the confusion is the terminology. I have to follow the terminology that's used out there. So it's called hematopoietic stem cell transplant. You really do get infused with hematopoietic stem cells. A hematopoietic stem cell, hematopoietic means blood. So it's a blood stem cell. So different organs have different adult stem cell compartments to rejuvenate or repair or replace tissue in that organ. And because blood cells are rather short-lived and turning over, you know, platelets live for less than a day and red blood cells for a month and neutrophils also have a not a infinite lifespan. But lymphocytes actually are a type of cell produced also by the hematopoietic or blood stem cell. And those stay with you pretty much your entire life. So the concept is that if you have an autoimmune disease, your immune cells like lymphocytes, there are other types that won't go down that path and really so forth. But these lymphocytes kind of that have mostly occurred during development in early years of your life are pretty much with you and they give you immunity. So once you've had an infection, you have immunity to reinfection and you can tolerate reinfection much easier. They recognize self from non-self. They help you fight viruses and foreign tissue as well. You know, if you have a organ transplant, the immune system becomes a problem because it's fighting it as a foreign organ and you have to suppress so you don't reject the heart or kidneys or whatever. And people are looking at ways to induce tolerance to get around that because that's the major problem with allowing that access to be really well tolerated and widespread. But what I realized is that we could, using the basic technology used in transplant for cancers where you knock out the blood stem cell and then regenerate it because the blood stem cells, the source of leukemia, is that we could do that same type of thing for an autoimmune disease because the blood stem cells the source of the immune cells causing your autoimmune disease and we just knock out the immune cells. But different than cancer is we do not need to destroy the stem cell itself because in most the vast majority of autoimmune diseases, such as the ones in this book, so one of the common ones, multiple sclerosis, it's not a stem cell defect. It doesn't mean that genetics, multiple genes don't play a role in this, but it's not a stem cell defect per se. So unlike leukemia, which is a blood stem cell defect, autoimmune diseases in the vast majority of cases are not a blood stem cell defect. They're a defect, if you will, in immune cells that have developed from the blood stem cell. So we don't need to get rid of the stem cell. We just get rid of the immune cells or markedly suppress them, the effector cells that are causing an autoimmune disease, and then regenerate them quickly from the blood stem cell. So because we're using your own blood stem cell or hematopoietic stem cell, and the way we do it, unlike leukemia where it's myeloablative and you totally destroy the stem cell, if you don't give it back, you will die. We don't destroy the stem cell compartment, the bone marrow. We just knock the immune cells down, but that also causes a suppression of hematopoiesis. And so to accelerate recovery, although it will occur without giving back your own blood stem cells that we collect from you before we give them back to you and that just accelerates recovery by about four or five days. So you're in graft about nine to 10 days after we do the procedure and then you're out of the hospital. And that's just a prudent thing to do. It makes it safer. But it's not a therapeutic product in and of itself. It's really a blood transfusion. It's a blood transfusion product. It doesn't itself do anything. But the regenerating immune cells that would occur with a non-myeloblative regimen if we don't give the stem cells back are what helps to reset your immune system towards tolerance to self. Now, that has caused, even though I pioneered this field and I was the one that brought the idea forward first to NIAID where they awarded a large $10 million contract for me to do this. There was another idea to use these cancer regimens that are myeloablative. They're much more intense and toxic. And so there are groups, predominantly in America and Canada, that use these intense leukemia cancer regimens. And I don't. And I've always argued against that because the reason you use them in leukemia is to get rid of the bad stem cells that are causing the leukemia, that's a genetic defect in those stem cells, a mutation or Combination of mutations, chromosomal abnormalities, so forth. So, but in an autoimmune disease, these stem cells are normal. You don't want to get rid of them. You want them there. Don't bother them. You want to get rid of the effector immune cells and then reestablish a new immune system from those stem cells. So you don't want to be myeloblative, unlike cancer. So I don't use those heavy cancer regimens. I use a much more gentle regimen. And so it's also more gentle for other organ systems, like it doesn't cause mucositis that cancer regimens can, less risk to the liver or other organs compared to cancer regimens. It's just a milder regimen. And so I've even though I started this field, I've had to argue against that myeloablative approach because I think it's just too toxic. And so one of the problems is, Out there in the medical community is, if you talk to a neurologist about all the different drugs, 15, 20 of them now that are available for MS, they know each drug has different toxicities and different efficacies. And it's good to have different ones to pick from based on how aggressive the disease is and if a patient's having a toxicity, and switch to another. If it stops working with one, you can do another. But they think of transplant as just one lump thing here, and it's not. It depends on the regimen you use. So there's many different types of transplant. Within that, the major break is whether it's myeloblative or non-myeloblative. It's now the rest of the world, especially Europe, South America, Asia, Myself use non-mile ablate, but the Americans and Canadians are pretty much stuck on this cancer way. And the reason that develops is because the people that have the technology to do it come out of transplanting cancer. And they don't know MS. And they have a hammer, and so they use that hammer on everything. I because I came up with this idea and realized to get good at it, you had to focus on it. I totally left the field of cancer behind, stopped transplanting cancers or leukemias, and I focused on autoimmune diseases. And so I had to learn those diseases. So I had to learn MS. I, I had to write my first protocols. I had to learn every autoimmune disease we did this in. And so I'd read all the literature, get an understanding of what really these drugs are doing and what are they can, their endpoints in these trials and what is their efficacy. And because I started thinking more, in those terms, I became even more strong that you want to use a non-myeloblative regimen. You want to do it as safe as possible. Now, in credit, I think the people that use these aggressive and much more expensive and toxic myeloblative regimens feel that they'll be more effective. There's no proof of that. But the effect is in the immune suppression. And in fact, you can make a non-myeloblative even more immune ablative or immune suppressive than a myeloblative regimen. It just doesn't destroy or affect the bone marrow stem cell compartment. It depends how you design the regimen. So that idea really doesn't hold up. And in fact, if you make your regimen too strong, you set yourself back. It's finding the right regimen becomes kind of an art and it's sitting at the bedside with the patient and a gut instinct and seeing how it does and then adjusting that regimen until you get one that works well. As I've described how I developed this field and modified my regimens. So if your regimen is too strong, whether it's myeloblative or too strong of a non-myeloblative one, too too immunosuppressive, you can have more toxicity and problems. If it's too weak, it's not going to be effective. And so you've got to find that right regimen. And like I say, it's in the book, it's like an astronomer finding the habitable zone for a planet. You can't be close to the sun. You can't be too far away. Life as we know it won't exist. So, you've got to find that right regimen. And that's going to vary by the disease. So, the habitable zone varies by the star. If it's a little red star, it's closer to the star than to the in orbit around the star. If it's a giant blue star, it's farther away beyond Mars or something to be habitable. So, it's the same with the disease. One regimen doesn't fit every disease. You have to, pretty much through trial and error, and living it in a kind of gut instinct designed and end up with the best regimen not too toxic but best efficacy and so you don't want to be too extreme so I've, I've had to kind of argue against that and for whatever reason as i point out in this book there's a problem in america with financial toxicity in which we tend to do the most expensive always yeah. yeah when less expensive methods could be done And I think part of that, as I bring out in the last chapter, because the last chapter, as patients always say, why doesn't anybody know about this? Why didn't you know about it? And I bring out those reasons not to criticize any one person, but to show problems in systemic problems in our medical system and in our society. They were developed with good intentions, but they develop problems in themselves, and they need to go back and be constantly tweaked. Otherwise, they start running over the patient, and they're designed actually for the patient, not for themselves, and existing for themselves, and the patient becomes the secondary endpoint. No, they were developed for the primary endpoint, which is the patient in front of you. And one of the problems is we are never taught cost-effectiveness. And in fact, we don't do the billing more and more physicians are becoming employees of large organizations such as hospitals, and they are pushed to generate RVUs, that is income, that feeds the administration above them. And if they don't make that quota at the end of the year, they're penalized in various ways, at least psychologically, certain job insecurity with that. If you exceed it, you get a big bonus. But the patient is left out of the picture because you're not thinking about the cost for the patient, whether it's their insurance or them paying or society, if it's a government run system, it's still society paying it. And if you can get similar outcomes or better outcomes and cost less, that's what you'd wanna do. So it's like, if you took your car to a mechanic, but they never had any idea what the billing was for you, and it wasn't important to them, they weren't taught it, they don't read about it, but there's somebody above them owning them, telling them you get the best charges for your bonus, or you're not going to be here, you'll get spark plugs, you'll go in for spark repair and they'll be made by some company in Italy that makes it for Lamborghinis and going to be ridiculously expensive when a simple Ford or Chevrolet made spark plug would have done perfect and it would have cost a lot less. So that's kind of what's going on. It's financial toxicity. And so I recommend in there after, normally we do phase one study, which is kind of toxicity phase two, efficacy phase three is randomized. It's important to randomize to show it's better than the control because there is subconscious. Conscious biased and everybody in the patients and in the physicians, and that kind of helps to eliminate that problem. But we don't do the phase four, if you will, which is cost effectiveness. So what is the cost of this compared to the other, all the other therapies out there and the effectiveness compared to those other therapies? So, like I go in and I show in multiple sclerosis, all I have a table in the MS section. Where I list many medications and the price of the medication when they were first came out on the market. The first ones were the interferons back in nineteen ninety three. They were like nine thousand dollars, and then I show the current or the twenty twenty price. The current price I'm sure is much more again, but the twenty twenty price for like interferons a hundred thousand dollars, one hundred three thousand dollars a year. But that's because every new drug that came out was a higher price, and all the prior drugs just went up to match that. And so all these drugs are running roughly a hundred thousand a year, whereas a non-milagraft transplant is a hundred thousand a year. So and the results are much more durable. So it's cost-effective because in my data we show at five years about twenty-three percent relapse. So that means a little more than seventy-five percent at five years have not relapsed and they've been drug-free. So that's a saving $100,000 a year for four years for 75 out of every 100 patients. So it's a cost-saving society. And the question is, are the results better? Well, the drugs, what their end point for approval is decreasing relapses or slowing progression of disability, that is permanent disability. It's not reversing disability. It's not stopping disability. It's not totally arresting the disease. It's not improvement in quality of life. It's not that at all. Whereas in transplant, because it's one-time treatment, you're off all drugs, we show shown that you have a marked improvement in quality of life and neurologic disability reverses. You get better, which the drugs don't show. Now, someone could argue some of the newer, more powerful drugs like Lentrata and Ocrevis, tisabri have a very small improvement in quality of life. On the SF36, it's a standard quality of life scale of one or two points. But that's a statistical thing if you can do enough patients. It's clinically meaningless. Meaningless statement because for any one person to feel an improvement in their quality of life, it has to change by at least five points. And the SF36 is a standardized, well vetted quality of life for questionnaire for multiple diseases, and they all know it. You need a five point change. No drug does that. Whereas transplant, you see the changes are 15 to 25 points, and it persists out to five years to our publications. So it's a fundamentally different paradigm, and it was what I wanted to do is take these chronic diseases, you treat chronically, and slow progression, that's considered success, have a one-time treatment, and you reverse them, and you get better. So you fundamentally change the natural history of the disease. You convert a chronic autoimmune disease into acute one-time illness. And that's worked for the majority of patients. But now you could argue, well, okay, what happens after five years? Well, drug trials really report one or two-year follow-up. That's kind of it. I've reported five years. There's a higher bar to get over because there is more upfront potential toxicity. You can never get rid of, of that being potentially lethal. In my last publication, it was under 0.5%, over 500 patients. But you, it's really hard. You can never say to someone, it can never be, you can never have mortality going through a transplant. Bizarre things happen in a hospital when you have neutropenia and reset the immune system. But it's patients being informed to understand that they live in their own shoes, making their own decisions. And I've always found the only patient's time a patient got upset at me is when I said, no, I wouldn't do it. They're willing to take that risk, you know, because they have a consent that they it's very clear and we kind of sit down and make that very clear to them. I want to make sure that I'd rather overemphasize potential risk than underestimate it. But I found patients really only get upset when we say no, and it's not because we don't want to give it to them. It's because we know in their particular case, it's just not going to work. It's not really going to benefit them. And that's also understanding. It won't work for secondary progressive MS. It's too late then. The disease has changed from an immune mediated disease. And this is really an immune reset, an immune-based type of therapy. Once it becomes a neurodegenerative, it won't work. This is not a true stem cell Neuroregenerative therapy, in that it's these hematopoietic stem cells do not make new neurons and they do not cause remyelination. Now, the reason patients get better with relapse and remitting with a hematopoietic immune reset is that the brain is capable of repairing itself up to a certain point and then just won't do it anymore. Part of that is the duration of the disease, and part of that is your age. The younger you are, the better the repair process, but also the duration of the disease. So we've even done this people like 58 and they've gotten better because they hadn't yet got into a secondary progressive. So it's not the key to this is not the stem cells, despite the name, hematopoietic transplant. There are two keys, selection of patient and your regimen, the conditioning regimen you use. But again, you want to use a non-myelobative. Non-myelobative regimens are very effective. They're about Half, less than half, cost myeloblatives. I don't know for sure, but many patients who've gotten myeloblatives and went to look at myeloblative for MS, it's $250,000. Non myeloblaters, $100,000. So again, this concept isn't conscious in the minds of academics or physicians. You get these tremendous results with the less risk. Why do you want to do this much more expensive one? And that's what it's not that anybody is intentionally trying to harm anybody or intentionally trying to profit on their disease. It's that it's just not out there and you're not taught and you don't think about it. And that's what I call financial toxicity. It's a problem in our system. And it would be very good to engage the physician at the bedside as part of his hippocratic oath and part of his training that the financial, the health of that patient is your responsibility too. Because if you don't have financial security, you don't have medical or psychological security. You can't get treatment if you don't have financial security. You can't get any kind of good, adequate treatment. And uh, psychologically, all that compounds on things. So it's an important part of healthcare that's being completely missed by the person that's supposed to represent you through this becoming ever larger bureaucratic system of medicine. And to do that, I argue, and I bring out how you do that, one is besides having requiring or strongly advocating for cost effective analysis after you've done the randomized trial is positive compared to what else is out there in terms of the cost and the benefit so that everybody's aware but that physicians should not be employees because medicine is a profession and healthcare is a business and I got into this as a profession and I was always in academic aspect of it it's not and it shouldn't be primarily a business and if it's going to be profession that patient you have to own that patient that is not own them as physical but own what happens to them if they get better that's because of what you're doing and if they don't it's it's because you've got to care for them is what i and care about what happens to them and that makes it a profession instead of a business but you have to be an independent employee Not obligated to the institution to make money for them so that you can go against some of the rules that benefit the institution but are against the interests of the patient to represent your patient, just like an attorney does. So God forbid if you need an attorney because of some problem, you don't want an attorney that's an employee of the judge or an employee of the prosecuting department if your attorney is an employee of the prosecutor, you're not gonna feel confident you'll get the best advice and that person's really gonna fight for you. So they have to be independent. It's the same with physician, to really properly represent their patient. They're gonna have to be independent of the institutionalized structures that exist above them that have turned them into employees. And because when I started in medicine, I've seen this change throughout my lifetime. I think people need to kind of wake up to that and to the financial toxicity of the system, this which then destroys the care you're trying to give to that patient. But physicians are totally oblivious to this cost effectiveness and the cost to the patient. Sometimes because insurance pays everything, more often it doesn't pay everything and the patients get a big bill and they're shocked by it. Get a patient, the summary of billing even if they're not paying they're shocked it's amazing these costs so because the system is not designed for cost effectiveness now that should never be perverted to say the cheaper you, you the role is to make things cheaper no the goal is your patient in front of you and if you can get better or same with less expensive you should be aware of it and you should make the patient aware of it the goal is always the best for the patient not cheaper for some institution that say a government committee says they do this because they don't have the money to pay for more, but also not for an organization that's generating profit and revenues off those patients and pushing you to bill in more because that was, feeds the bureaucracy above them. So in order to do that, we've got to, physicians have to be independent and they also need to be trained and educated and then be aware of and read the literature about cost effectiveness of different types of therapies. And one of the reasons why what I do is so cost-effective is the patents on all these drugs have expired. And once a patent expires, the cost markedly drops. It drops to the true profit from current production because it's no longer recovering all the costs required for development and doing a phase one, phase two, phase three trial. I mean, those are very expensive. And so it doesn't have to recover that anymore. And so the costs markedly drop. Well, what happens when a drug company Wants to get a drug approved. They want it against the weakest thing out there. So they show it works and then they have approval. They're not going to compare it against the most potent drug out there. It may not be more effective and then they don't get approval. Well, the truth is, you want to have patients vary in how they respond to drugs. Some have a toxicity and they can't take it. So if it works, you want to have it available. But then what happens the next step where you compare it towards the best available out there or to the best available non patented, whose patents long gone? once a patent's gone nobody's going to study it cuz they won't get anything out of it so that's another problem in your healthcare system because the way i did this and the why it's relatively cheaper is cuz we use non-patented drugs in the conditioning regimen that in other words People have had a lot of experience with them for many decades, the patents are expired. A lot has been written about their toxicity. You already have a good understanding. We're using doses that have been used in the past. We're not asking for a new indication, there's no patent. So the drugs are a lot cheaper. And so there's been this bias in our healthcare system and in the media. Oh, the FDA hasn't this drug, you can't do it. Well, no, you're just driving the cost of everything sky high. A doctor is trained for more than a decade to learn these different drugs and then to say it basically drugs are used all the time where they don't have an FDA indication, like all autoimmune diseases, virtually all of them are treated with steroids. I can think of one exception and cytoxin oral or IV. And those drugs have never been approved for that indication nor will they be? Because there's no patent on them anymore. So no drug company going to invest in it because why should they? At the end of the day, they get nothing out of it. They spend a lot of money and they have nothing because they don't monopolize it they can't recover their costs it just isn't going to happen it falls on the physician caring for the patient to understand that and to look at cost effectiveness and to treat the patient and then even to publish those results so that others know and that's what we did we took non-patented drugs used them in a short like 5 day in application gave them back their stem cells so that they regenerate faster. We didn't have to do it, but it makes them regenerate faster. And this stopped all medications. But there's no patent on those medications, and nobody will get a license for using them, nor do we want that. What we're doing is true academic medicine. I think it goes back to why this isn't taking off and why you don't care about it. And I, I bring out those issues in that last chapter, but one of those important points is financial toxicity. And the problem is our system is becoming financially toxic and it can't continue to support itself by doing that, much less the patients. And if, if that type of stuff continues, patients lose trust in their doctors. If you lose trust in your doctors, you can't care for people. All interactions between an individual Hinge on trust. And once that's gone, you can't have a constructive interaction.
0: And that's one of the things in your book over and over with your examples. And as I said offline or off camera, of course, I looked you up online and the amount of positive support, comments, prior patients of yours who may or may not have been in the book, who were just writing in on their own about how much you would help them save their life, change their life, because of that trust, because of that one on one doctor patient interaction was just like absolutely melted my heart. And I was like, yes, this is what medicine's all about. And I hope as people are listening, they obviously feel that passion come through, come through the audio or the video, whichever way they're going. I also want them to know that this is not like a pill that they're just going to pop at home. Like this is, this transplant does take some effort this is, And you had mentioned a little bit about doing the five days, then adding in the hematopoietic stem cell transplant. But can you give people an example, an idea of what to expect if they're looking into this more? This isn't an at-home treatment. This is an in-hospital treatment.
1: Yeah. So the first thing is we ourselves have screening forms that they would be provided by a nurse and that they're contacting. And then they fill it out, send it back. And I go over it with the nurse to determine whether they could be a potential candidate that is could benefit from this. And if it's clear they're not going to benefit, then it stops. And the reason we do that is because people come to me from all over the world, as you can tell from the book, and certainly from every state and have come from every state in America. So I don't want them to have to pay for that airfare and pay for a hotel and pay the hospital and pay me when they're clearly not going to be a candidate. So we do that to save them that money. Now, often they're disappointed, but it's, again, we're trying to do the right thing for them, be cost effective for them. And, you know, if we feel we can help them, we'll definitely want to help them, but we don't want to put someone this can't help through this procedure. So once you're like late secondary progressive, non-active secondary progressive, we can't help you. And unfortunately, a lot of people are kept on these drugs until they're non-active, secondary progressive, and then it's too late and we can't help them. So and I think neurologists will keep them on these drugs until it's non-active because they don't know this technology, they can't do it. And they think it's a stem cell and we're going to cause some sort of neuroregeneration. regeneration. No, it's an immune reset, and now immune damages. Done and over, and you're into a neurodegenerative phase, and this won't work. So again, that's just a misunderstanding out there and why I wanted to bring this out. As a matter of fact, I think there's an entire misunderstanding in the field when it comes to MS, and that is the outcomes. They're not talking about quality of life. They're not talking about reversing disability. More importantly, nobody talks about brain atrophy. So as we get older, unfortunately, our brains do atrophy. It's a natural, slow decline. But when you have MS, it's a much faster decline and nobody's looking at that. So atrophy of a brain, that, that's who you are. I think therefore I am. I, that's Descartes, I brought that quote out in the book. And you know, if you lose a part of what the neurosystem is, you lose a part of who you are. And so this we need to focus on brain atrophy and converting that back to the normal baseline and maybe someday even improving or stopping that as we look into how to reverse aging which, believe it or not, is kind of one of the things of my next technology. Another time, another talk if I get there with our IPS cells. But I think that all these endpoints for approval of these drugs are not the best endpoints. It's not quality of life, it's not reversing disability, and it's certainly not brain atrophy. And when you have a heart attack, they know you got to work fast to save cardiac tissue. But this working fast to save the mind hasn't really been considered in this field of neurology. And I think there needs to be an adjustment for that. Now, of course, the atrophy isn't like a rapid heart attack, but it's more accelerated, quite a bit more than normal aging. And I think the sooner you can stop that and return to normal aging, the better. And those things haven't been considered. Like if you have an attack for MS, a lot of patients complain to me, they can't see a neurologist for eight months. Yeah. I mean, so it's really not considered that urgent an issue, but it really defines who you are. So it should be viewed as a more semi acute issue than what it is. So again, this is a whole different approach. We are trying to save brain tissue and to improve quality of life and reverse disability. I guess the question is, how durable is the process? Because our studies will go out to five years. Well, in writing this book, I was just randomly talking to patients who are 10, 15, 20, the longest 21 years after procedure. That was an MS patient. And I was stuck because they're glad to be free of the medical system. They don't contact us anymore. And uh, because our patients would have to fly back from far away and deal with an MRI and being seen and everything. I was always amazed how willing they were to do that and wanted to, but it's great inconvenience to them. and that's an expense for them. I was always amazed how they would do it, but obviously after a period of time, it's ridiculous to go through that. So I was contacting them, and they're still in remission. Every single one I contacted was still in remission, doing great, never had another attack, no more drugs, living you know, a good life. So down the line, I realize, again, it's how much time is available and to be able to do this, but somewhere I should write on the long-term outcome on 10 years of these pages. Because it appears that, the. I mean, now I didn't do it methodically, I was just randomly calling some people in, but everyone I called was still doing great. So that was very encouraging that we can actually have these remissions exceeding 10, 15, 20 years now, at which point you can start wondering, there's no definition for cure. So I don't use the word cure. Actually, I did for the first time in the book use the word
0: cure. (laughs) I saw that.
1: (laughs) But I qualify it as you read it saying, I don't use that term because there's no definition for a cure. But we definitely change the natural history. And when you're looking at 15, 20 years where you got better, stayed better, and no drugs and no evidence, MS, you've got to start wondering, yeah, we have found the right door to go down. And maybe we should start looking at how you define a cure for this disease. And again, technology will come along that will help define that. There are new things like neurofilament markers in the CSF and stuff like that. Unfortunately, there is no cure for this. One of the things I didn't bring out, I could have brought out, but again, space limitations, and I wanted to get more of the patient stories than medicine, but in probably the best biological marker for MS, there isn't a good one, but the best are the all clonal bands and the CSF fluid. When a lumbar puncture to put a needle in the back to collect a little CSF fluid, almost all MS patients have clonal bands. The question is, do they disappear? And when I randomized trial was four centers, it was here in Chicago, in Sheffield of the United Kingdom, in Uppsala, Sweden, and in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Well, the people in Sweden actually went ahead and did follow-up LPs, and they reported that separately. And it turns out that about eight years after transplant, algal clonal bands totally disappear, the CSF becomes normal. So if there is an oligoclonal marker for MS, the best one would be those oligoclonal bands. And with transplant, but you have to wait till about eight years out, during remission, they're doing fine, get better, they go away. So that's very encouraging. There just wasn't enough room to bring that up in there. So this is a fundamentally different type of therapy than the drug therapies, which are really designed to just kind of slow worsening, kind of tamper things down. This is designed to reset, allow the CNS, the brain, spinal cord to repair itself, and then there seems to be very long-term durable remissions. Now, some people do relapse about 23%. I don't know why. I can't predict who's going to relapse up front, so I don't want to underplay that. If they relapse, they're generally easier controlled than they were before the transplant with these drugs. but. Two patients had aggressive relapse. They were aggressive when they first came. They had aggressive relapse one at two years, one at five years after the transplant. And I didn't want to retransplant them, but they kind of twisted my arm because they just wouldn't take any drugs if I didn't do it. And so we did. And they have a remission inversion. Both are still in remission, got better again, went back to walking, doing good. And that remission is longer than the first remission. One of those I talk about in the book. You never see that in leukemia with biloblative regimens for leukemia. When you relapse after a second transplant, the second remission is shorter. So if it's longer, that's called a remission inversion. And these second remissions on only the two I've done it on are longer. Now, of course, I want a one-time treatment. I don't want to have to repeat this two or five years later. But patients who have that stunning improvement and then they're back, they want that done. And that remission in those two has been much longer. But again, that's an NF2, and we just need to do more patients to get a better understanding as to how effective it would be as a second transplant. But my goal is a one-time treatment.
0: And is your clinic in Chicago the only place to do this in the United States?
1: Well, it's Scripps. So my research is in Chicago, but my clinical care is at Scripps in California. Yeah. And it's the only place in America they are offering the, uh, it's NIAID, the National Institute of Disease that's supporting the myeloblative regimen. I took the idea to them a long time ago. I was awarded this big contract, but then we started arguing because they wanted myeloblative, and I didn't. And I could never figure it out because I already had the data, and I had already transitioned into just treating autoimmune patients. And I think I can't speak for them. I could never understand it. I think to them, it's a scientific question. Let's study the immune system on its regeneration, and the best way to do it is totally nuke it and blow it up, and then Study what's developed. Well, that's not the best way because it's not going to come back normal if you totally nuke it. It just doesn't. That's well known from haploidentical transplants. So which, and this is not the best for the patient. And my goal is always do the best for the patient. The scientific, science is very important how you help people. But that's the second question, it's not the first. Do the best for the patient and then study the science as well as the clinical outcome afterwards. I was always concerned that their main goal was to answer a question, if you just totally blow out the immune system, what happens afterwards? And the concern of whether it really improved the patient at the end of the day just didn't seem to have that passion like it was for me, and we argued and argued and argued it. So I kind of brought that out in the book, and so I just wouldn't do, despite I was the one that gave him the idea, gave him the initial data, and got the big contract, I just wouldn't do that. So they still push, the, I was able to get them to not do an aggressive total body of radiation for MS, but they still push a aggressive myeloblade of regimen designed for lymphomas, and it's just not necessary. The cost isn't necessary, the toxicity isn't necessary, and I doubt it would be better in terms of outcome than this regimen we use. The only way to do it is do a comparative analysis, but the difference, that'll never happen to tell the truth. And in fact, again, the rationale for myeloablative just isn't there. You don't want to destroy the blood stem cell. With autoimmune. You can be more immune suppressive with a non-myeloablative than no matter how aggressive the myeloablative is, but you don't destroy the blood stem cells. So, But the point is, at some point, becoming more immune destructive is also counter-effective for the patient. And you just get more toxicity and more problems with regeneration immune system. Because the key to this is as the immune system regenerates, it resets to tolerance. And again, that's the difference between cancer and, and the autoimmune world. And people do have technology to do this, come out of cancer, and a leukemia cell is bad, and you got to destroy them all. If one exists, continues to live, it could repopulate, and the cancer comes back. And so you don't want it. And I understand that. I used to transplant leukemias. I understand that. But in autoimmune disease, when you get rid of your autoimmune lymphocytes, your immune system from that stem cell will automatically repopulate with lymphocytes that can recognize, bind to self, and cause autoimmune disease. They are not. An autoimmune reactive cell is not a bad cell. In other words, as lymphocytes develop and redevelop after a transplant or develop throughout infancy and and childhood, is you're in early phases of this lymphocytic lineage, the T cell receptors randomly recombined with different proteins to give the receptor on the surface of the cell that can bind to peptides. And that Receptor, the combinations are in the millions, and it's a random process. So that way, you're guaranteed to have lymphocytes that can recognize all kinds of peptides out there to attack. But it also means it can recognize self, self self-peptides. So you regenerate self-reactive lymphocytes. Now, in the process of regenerating, it turns out if they recognize self with too much tightness, avidity, they will die, undergo apoptosis. If they recognize it with a lot of avidity, but not too much, they survive, but they become Treg cells that shut down the immune system. If they recognize it with some avidity or binding, they become potential effector cells, but they're energic, they don't attack. And if they don't recognize it at all, they also die. They've got to recognize that peptide in development or they don't, they die, they undergo apoptosis. To become a fully functional T cell, they have to recognize self. With high avidity, they become effector uh, T-regulatory cells that try to shut down immune responses to that peptide. With moderate avidity, they become potential effector cells that can cause that disease, but they're inergic To break that, you have to have other stimuli. They just don't see that peptide. They have to have other stimuli to break that. And so we kind of reset it. We, and once it's broken, you have a problem with a lifelong lymphocyte that can it cause this disease again? Now your immune system relapsing, remitting, on its own, tries to shut it down. That's why the relapse stopped. But you can have a relapse again, depending how effective it is at holding it, because now you've already kind of got immunized to yourself your system will try to shut it down, but you're immunized to yourself, it's easier to have another relapse. And so what we wanna do is move in there and get rid of those cells immunized to yourself, let it reestablish tolerance, but you have to understand it will naturally reestablish some sites that can recognize self and potentially cause an autoimmune disease. Now, for most of your life up to the, well, for your life up to the time of which you had MS, you never had a problem. The sequence of events that actually flip them over where they'll start attacking self is really not understood. And I'm sure it's probably several events, not just one. But once they're there, they're long lived with you. So rather than just trying to suppress them, we try to reset it. Now, in fact, the immune system is always trying to reset. And if you wait long enough for MS, it eventually gets to be secondary progressive in which the immune system does reset itself. But now there's so much damage here in permanent neurodegeneration, even though you're not having new attacks or new lesions you are getting worse neurologically because where all that damage is, those neurons are slowly dying out. And so you want to push that reset. That will happen automatically, although it can be delayed many years or a decade and you're secondary progressive and it's too late. You want to push it up much earlier, and that's kind of what this therapy does.
0: Yeah. If somebody is at Scripps, how long will they be there? How long is this like start to finish process?
1: Yeah, so then if it's decided that we'll evaluate, you come for evaluation for one day and then go back. And if it looks like that with the actual on-site exam and evaluation that your candidate will apply for insurance. And we do those battles with the insurance company, send them publications and why we want to do this. And oftentimes you have to have appeals and those appeals can dry out for many months, six, seven, eight, 10 months sometimes, sometimes they approve right away. The more we publish, the more people know, the more information out there, the easier it is to get that approval. But that's why I did the medical textbook. (laughs) This one that came out in November of 2021, why I did the Slay book and why we have a website, a stem cell journey with all my publications in there. So in the appeal process, because the people that make the decision in the insurance company committee, There's no way they can be on top of of everything in medicine and certainly not in what I'm doing. So they're not going to have all the information. And when we'd send them appeals, we'd always put all my publications in with the appeals. And inevitably, I found every single committee, every single time, they never got those publications. And so we have a website with those publications there so I can talk to them and say, go right to this publication. they often have their laptops, pull it up. You can see, we've done the randomized trial. Here it is. Here's the difference. And that's just mine. Now other publications out where other people are confirming this. So, but that's a process we go through. absolutely no charge to a patient. And once we have insurance approval, and then if the insurance doesn't approve, no hospital, almost all the fees are hospital, no hospital is going to do it for free. So the patient or the family has to generate money for it. And then we take them through the transplant. And that transplant, it's depending on the disease. It can be from seven to five day conditioning regimen. And then the stem cells are infused the next day. And then by day nine or 10 after that, you usually discharge. So it's about a 15 day hospitalization. And usually with these non myelobitives, because you don't have megositis or any organ injury or anything, you bounce back so fast. The day we discharge you, you can go to the airport and go home. Wow. Then, and then your blood work is from a blood draw, phlebotomy is checked once a week for two months, then, no, once a week for one month, and then every two weeks for two months, then we're kind of done. And we do that just to make sure everything's okay, to monitor one virus called CMV. If it starts to uptick, we'll, we give you a different oral pill until it stops. But that's kind of a small detail, not necessary here. And then of course, we used to have everybody come back six months, one year, and then yearly for five years. But the six month really isn't necessary. So if you want to come back fine, otherwise kind of try to get you back. And It's probably fine to come back one, three, and five years if you're doing well because we don't want the expense or inconvenience for the patients. And I've already done this enough. I know what to expect.
0: So this is amazing. As we're running out of time and wrapping up this podcast, I know the first question everyone has, besides just get the book, but where can they learn more? Like what website should they go to, to look this up?
1: So my website, astemcelljourney.com. Okay. It's all one word, no caps, astemcelljourney.com. There's a lot of information there, but I do get this book. I wrote this. (laughs) I agree. It will really educate them and bring them up to date and they can show their physicians. and If their physicians say, oh, this is a nice fantasy book, don't believe it. They can say, go to the website or look at this medical textbook written by 140 professors and associate professors. And hopefully this will help change the field. Just like doing this, you getting this information out, it's really important. Like you said, you're in medicine, you're doing a podcast help educate people and you weren't aware of
0: this. I had no idea.
1: I've been working on it 35 years. I've talked around the world, as you can see on the website and have many publications and it's like still nobody knows. And I'm like just amazed by this. And so the patients come back and they say, why aren't people standing on rooftops screaming about this? And so I try to address that in the last section. It's how our systems gotten set up. It's not that anybody's being malicious. It's just how the systems got structured.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Bird, I just really, really appreciate your time. Like I said, when I got your book, I read it in one solid day. I couldn't put it down. I have told multiple colleagues about it who have now gone and purchased your book. And I can't believe in my 24 years in the field of medicine, I knew what a stem cell was. I had never heard of this, and I'm just honored to have you on today. So thank you.
1: Thank you. One last thing, if we have a moment. Yes, please. You know, we talk about MS a lot here. MS is one of the thousand, and it's one of the most well-known autoimmune diseases. In the last chapter, I list 75 different autoimmune diseases there. And in the book, I don't only talk about MS, but systemic sclerosis, also called scleroderma. A neuromyelitis optica, CIDP or chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculopathy, and Crohn's disease. But in fact, we've also done transplants in lupus, stiff person syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, and a few other really rare neuro autoimmune disorders, but and type one diabetes. But there was no time to put them in the book. And I mentioned that at the beginning. You
0: mentioned them, yeah. So
1: that could be another book which I don't think I'll ever get to, but it also will depend because each regimen has to be designed for each autoimmune disease. And it it really depends on other people, I think, taking this and running with it. And I want others to perfect and do it in other diseases and also they come up with even better regimens than I have, good for them. And with time, that should happen. As one of the other problems, you know, systemic problems for our structure, is there is no department of autoimmune disease, no institute of autoimmune disease. There is no National Institute of Autoimmune Disease that would fund centers of autoimmune disease. There's a National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. That's not an autoimmune department. So one of the other problems is what I call homelessness. We're orphaned. So, like the technology to do this comes out of hematology, but hematologists don't understand any of these autoimmune diseases. And they're orphaned in different departments or divisions. So, you, whereas the people in those divisions or departments caring for those diseases don't understand transplant. So, that's a big problem. And they're all in different areas, different silos. So they don't see, they don't understand each other. I was able to cross that silo by being trained in one then totally focusing in another. But what I realized is what we need is a department institute of autoimmune diseases. And if Congress could fund a national institute of autoimmune disease, now I'm sure there's gonna be politics there of where that money goes that different institutes don't wanna share. But it would allow people to have a home in which these autoimmune diseases are there, they can be studied together. There are similarities, there are differences. And this, there could be within that institute a division or a department of cellular therapies that would include hematopoietic stem cell trans, but also other cellular therapies that have a future for this, like CAR T cells. It's a whole other different thing. But the way medicine got structured that way is because in the early days, before microscopes, you could see the skin, that's dermatology. On autopsy, you see the heart or lungs, that's cardiology and pulmonology and so forth. But nobody knew about these cells circulating in the blood, and by the time you have a microscope to see them, nobody knew what they did, and by the time you studied them, there were all these established departments and fiefdoms where autoimmune diseases were in totally different locations, like MS is in neurology, Crohn's disease in gastroenterology, scleroderma is in rheumatology, and so there developed departments of immunology that are basic research, but the clinical departments were never united for the autoimmune diseases. They're already established fiefdoms. And if it could be restructured, that would help a lot with the conclusions and the problems that are rising. There's two other issues that bring up at the end of the book as to why the structure of the system doesn't facilitate this taking off despite these tremendous results, or even informing people of them, because there is risk, and yes, you can never eliminate mortality, you can make it very low, you can't eliminate it, but people need to be informed that's the true meaning of consent, that they're informed of their options. And so anyway, those other issues, you, I guess, have to read the book to see <laughs> it. we're out of time. But thank you.
0: Thank you. This has been absolutely fantastic. A stemcelljourney.com. Everybody go check him out, read his book, Everyday Miracles. Like I said, I'm a big fan. So Dr. Bird, I really appreciate it. Thank you. goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.